So you said to me during the shoot that you've not been photographed by a man since the 90s. Yeah, and I actually found this whole experience quite intimidating because I've been, even though I agreed to do it 12 months ago, it's all I've been thinking about. That's Camille. She's a photographer, an academic, and a sex worker. I'm Robert Gershenson, a photographer and podcaster, and this is Sex Work, a podcast all about what it means to be a sex worker right now. To check out the portraits in this series, head to sftl underscore studios on Instagram. And I guess I kind of have to give your listeners a background in how I got into sex work and sort of how photography and sexual violence merge in my worlds. So in 1990, I had the unfortunate fate to cross paths with a sadistic serial rapist um, who happened to be one of my school teachers and he started grooming me from the age of 14. And he used to, photography, I was very big into photography as a kid. It's all I spoke about. Um, And he used photography to groom me, to get my trust, to compliment me. And he spent a lot of time over those seven years that he abused me taking my photographs and a lot of the photographs were nice and sweet but also a lot of them were quite quite vile and I guess he was just so mean and nasty to him to me a lot of the comments that he said to me whilst he photographed me 30 years ago just resonate in my head now in that photo shoot, like you're hunched over, you're too fat, you'd be more attractive if you were skinnier. And you are the first man to photograph me since then. I avoid um, photography, even though I am a photographer, because photography is so wrapped up with sexual violence, serious, sadistic sexual violence, that it's very triggering for me. When we were looking through the photos, you seemed quite happy with them. You seemed quite surprised no that's a lie (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, I have such pathological insecurities because of the nature of the sexual abuse I experienced and this man this rapist came into my life when I was 14 at the age when your identity starts to form and he hypersexualized me and he degraded me until the age of 21 so my mindset is still set as a 14-year-old kid trapped, you know, in the clutches of this serial sadistic rapist. Your core belief was formed then and it hasn't changed. Absolutely. And I am so riddled with self-doubt, beset with fears, pathological hatred that... Of who? You Of myself. Of yourself. Because there's a lot of victim-blaming that still goes on that people think I'm confident... Because it's, it's a performance. Yeah. Because if you I think it would be quite difficult for people to understand just how insecure I am because of the sexual violence. So I might look at the photographs and go, oh, they're nice. But the reality is I'll go home tonight and beat myself about up about them probably for the next 20 years. And it's nothing you've done per se. The mm. photographs might be lovely. And I recognise that, you know, we never see ourselves the way other people see us. But it's just something so inherent in the trauma that's attached attached to sexual violence and photography and prostitution. It makes it impossible for me to see myself with any sense of value or any sense of happiness, which is probably why the photographs of me smiling are quite surprising. It's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm used to people looking at photographs I've taken of them and them zoning in on the things that they are insecure about i'm very used to that to the point where i know it's coming let it happen and then carry on with the shoot it's just the first time i've ever had someone who has had the experience you've had yeah you know it's almost like that's the first legitimate conversation first legitimate reason that someone's given me for not liking certain aspects about sure and i guess This is the problem with sexual violence, the problem with rape. And you've got to understand that he sexually violated me between 80 to 100 times. Is that there's no such... Rape is not past tense. It lives in your head all the time. And I guess, do you know, a 
lot of criticisms women get is that they're so vacuous. They just, you know, if you've got body concerns, it's because you're vain. And in this networked world where everything is about the image, the way that you look matters. But for me, the insecurities come from the fact that this man went on seven years of a sexual rampage at my expense and even 30 years later, it's impossible for me to look at myself and see anything other than nothing. And that's the brutal truth. So you learn, you learn the performance of confidence. But when you, the problem with photography, and I know this as a photographer and I know this as a photography academic, which is quite bloody ironic <laughs> that my PhD is <laughs> in photography... It's that photography's their inherent power is not to create stories, it's to anchor memories. So when I'm photographed by a man, when I see photographs of myself, it just drags up all this negativity that's associated with photography for me. Because you also need to know that my father died when I was a baby, I didn't know him, but my mother, bless her, she became an active accidental archivist and she kept like hundreds and hundreds of photographs so I've learned to connect to a man that I didn't know through the power of photography then this man other man has come along and just shattered and destroyed that beautiful connection with photography and weaponized it against me and we're still to this day I still have problems having my photograph taken but and the sad thing about that is that I don't want to get to 80 and realise I've got no photographs of myself because I was fat, I was ugly, because this man violated me, because we all end up as a collection of photographs. Mm. That's all we end up as. And there's nothing sadder than these quotes about, you know, no no, no known photos exist or this is the last photograph taken of this person. We invest such power in photographs, but we then don't, question or ask ourselves well what does a photograph mean for the person in the photographs because you might look at a photograph of me and go oh she's attractive whatever maybe not <laughs> and I'll look at the same photograph and I will see some hypersexualized, abused little kid who still cannot ask the question of why me that's the and the fact that I've allowed you to photograph me probably is one of the most terrifying but also healing experiences at the same time because it's, it, it directly challenges experiences I had when I was 14, 15, 16 of um, being violated through the image and um, by the camera. And, you know, people don't like Susan Sontag, but she was right when she spoke about the camera is a, an agent of violence. It's a weapon of genderized abuse. And that's what that man did for me. He weaponized photography against me to dehumanize me. And I'm still, um, I guess I'm still trying to deal with that. But I think people will find that really interesting because people will say, oh, you're so confident, you're so accomplished. Um, but it's a performance. <laughs> it's all a performance. And photography strips that performance away. If you're looking at a visual representation of yourself, you have to see yourself for the way that you are, mm. regardless of whether you you think you look good or not. If that's not, if that image, and the word image comes from what we form in our minds, if that image on paper on the screen doesn't marry up with what's in your head, then there's going to be terrible conflict. I think that's no more true now than it's ever been. We're living in the age of the selfie, where if someone's going to post a selfie to social media they will take 20 or 30 to get it right. The image that they want to project and the, the image they, they want to sell, let's say, online, their brand. So we're living in, in a time now where photography is so prevalent and so important to people's individual identity. Yeah, but photography is a construct. Identity on social media, authenticity is a performance. There's mm. no such thing as authenticity on social media. Yeah, and these are the same people who will take 60 photographs, put a selfie online, then hashtag it unfiltered. I'm mm. like, seriously. <laughs> a photograph is edited before you even take it. Yes. And I think the problem 
with photography now and social media spaces is that we assume it's authentic, but there's a brilliant quote and I cannot recall the guy who said this, but he talks about documentary film in which he says it's a creative treatment of actuality. It's a performance of authenticity. It's not real. Photography allows you to present to the world or your different worlds versions of yourself that you want to portray. The problem with portrait photography, if you're not smiling, the problem with selfies, especially selfies, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you happy? Why isn't your head tilted this way? And then it becomes you become consumed through the image. And I think one of the really disturbing things for me about 2021 was um, the realisation that the man who raped me sadistically in the 1990s had decided to pop up on social media. And not only that, he decided to have a profile picture that was a selfie that he took during his rape trials. And he also posted a series of portraits um, from when he was raping me. And I, as an academic, I was like, my God, what is that <laughs> about? But as his victim, those photographs, you know, you, you inher- when you look at photographs of rapists, I think women have an inherited trauma and they're just so grotesquely offensive to me that it brought back everything... Because for me, the photograph is a site of violence, such as revenge porn, Mm -hmm. but it's also a vehicle for other forms of sexual violence, like this rapist. But the problem with social media, how many photographs is enough? How many do you put up? I want to consume. And when I realised that this rapist, and I'm not going to dignify him with his name, um, Australians do have a, a phrase called... Maggot shit cunt. What? <laughs> Maggot shit cunt. But I'm only saying that because someone <laughs> I've dedicated this podcast to a, a very important man in my life, and he, I, I, I promised myself I'd get maggot shit cunt and headbutt <laughs> into the podcast. I felt so consumed and so violated that he was looking at me through the photographs that I posted on social media that I went and stripped all my so all con- social media content from my profiles because the idea of men looking at me and consuming me makes me physically sick but because I'm also a prostitute and because I'm an academic I can't go oh (laughs) men looking at me online makes my stomach churn but you know what perhaps we should have academic papers and articles about being visually consumed through images and how that's a form of genderized violence and how repugnant and repulsive it is like men will email me oh you're so attractive if only in your smile if you smiled well maybe I would smile if men weren't such sadistic pricks (laughs) then I would be okay to smile but why do I have to smile and even what was interesting when we did this photo shoot I don't like smiling how am I going to smile and the, the I think the one photograph I did like that I've convinced myself I'll like because when they're published I'll look at those photos and go oh my god what a fat whore you look terrible you're ugly repulsive and allow the photographs to play out this victim you know abuse cycle in my head which then allows myself to engage in all these self-loathing harmful um, behaviours like cutting cocaine, eating disorder, prostitution, I consider a form of self-harm. Because I don't know, I, I don't, as an academic, I can attach meaning to images and I can understand why they exist. But as a rape survivor, as a prostitute, as someone who's been horribly um, traumatised through the image, I can't look at photographs of myself and be happy but... I will always be grateful to my mother who saved all these photographs of a man I didn't know because he died when I was a baby and I have no memory. So those photos have allowed me to construct stories and ideas about a man who I didn't know. I don't want future generations, although I respect we're probably only remembered for three generations. (laughs) I don't want future family members not to have photographs of me because I felt too fat or I felt too ugly or my rapist had just destroyed photography for me. So, And I, I, I want to have photographs left behind because we're only young once and we never see each ourselves for the way that other people see us. And I'd like to get to 80 
70. <laughs> I'd settle for 60, to be honest, <laughs> and go, Jesus, you were hot and or you were good looking or you were normal or you weren't this hypersexualized creature that men had turned you into. You were just you. But will I be able to look at these photographs that you've taken now and go, oh, I'm happy with these? No, probably not until I'm well and truly into my old age and I'm, I'm comfortable with my mind and I'm comfortable with my body. Let's go back. You said that he used photography against you. How did that, how does that manifest? Yeah, so, so I was a 14 year old kid. We got this new science teacher and he was very charismatic and charming. And within three months of me meeting him, he decided to start grooming me for sex. And he knew I was into photography. He was a photographer. I'm just going to say a pretty bloody ordinary photographer. His work is shocking, which I will critique one day <laughs> when I'm in a better place. And he used photography as an excuse to spend a lot of time with me. Right. And then the, the compliments. You're very pretty. You're a very attractive woman. Bearing in mind I was 14. Mm-hmm. And so he would then use, set up photo shoots to spend time alone with me and if you progress further on into the abuse because some of the abuse happened when I was drunk I am fairly sure he took sexualized images and but also because I was doing photography at high school over various periods um, a lot of the sexual offenses occurred in the dark room and photography in the 1990s had such a physicality to it like the smell of fixer Mm -hmm. the dark the red so the whole entire process of photography became triggering to me because in my mind photography was so wrapped up with sadistic sexual violence um for instance you know being sodomized in the dark room being repeatedly you know raped in a dark room that that's pretty hard those types of triggers uh, are pretty hard to budge and then in 1997 I finally snapped and and I think I didn't kill myself because I was so used to shame that the idea of taking someone to court and being outed as a rape victim wasn't a problem for me because I was so used to shame as a, an everyday emotion and self-hatred and self-loathing, which then doesn't marry up with let's take selfies. I mean, I didn't get a smartphone at all last year. I just, I just do not take photographs of mm. myself. So I took him to court and this was an extended battle that kind of went on from 1997 to 2000. And then I developed a, uh, Australian, a big drinking problem. <laughs> And, you know, after the court cases, I just collapsed. And But he had um, part of, I mean, the reason why I ended up as a, a prostitute, and I'm very clear on this, that I would never have crossed, I would never have become a prostitute by choice if I had not been sexually abused. So was it a case that he, he forced you into prostitution yeah. or you? No. He, I met him when I was 14. He started grooming me within three months. With, within 12 months, the sexual violations occurred. Probably by the end of 1991, he was suggesting that he wanted to have sex, wanted me to have sex with other men. Um, really derogatory remarks about one, me wanting to, you know, turning me into a prostitute. He wanted to set me up in a flat because I was such a beautiful woman. So, you know, I could have sex with him and his friends. And then he pimped me out to a bent police detective who was his friend. Right. right? So they would traffic me back and forth to Melbourne. So very early on in the – and I, I, I use the term relationship because that's what it was. I mean, it's not the traditional sense of a consensual relationship, nor do I believe such a term as child prostitute because you can – there's no such thing. There's only rape survivors. Mm-hmm. So then – the cops started pimping me out to other men and I don't know whether your listeners might be aware of 1990s crime culture in Melbourne. At the time, they had a lot of gangland war, um, warfare is probably a good word and the crooked cop had pimped me out to some really interesting, dangerous men. And so for me to get out of all that, I escaped to university thinking 
that these men would leave me behind, but they just followed me and persisted. And I ended up, yeah, I very much ended up as a prostitute. And when you realise I'm 46, the fact that I've been in the sex industry for 31 years should shock, disturb and anger people. There is no such thing as an ethical sex buyer. That's like saying fair trade bananas. It's bullshit. Someone is getting screwed over down the line. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so I was, and it was very difficult to break free from. Like I remember one instance with a man that I was feeling very uncomfortable. So I kind of ran after the bathroom and then took off. And then the cop complained to the school teacher who then, you know, brutalised me because I had failed as a prostitute. Mm. And, you know, it's a very slippery slope. Once you're in, I mean, that's what, Men create prostitutes. They dehumanise you to an extent that you can't do anything else other than prostitution. They shame you as a prostitute. And then if you try to leave, you can't because you've been shamed as a prostitute. And let me be very clear in saying that that school, the only thing that they ever taught me was to taught me how to be a prostitute. I mean, bearing in mind, this is in Australia, so you could do this. A lot of, you know, topless waitressing, lingerie waitressing, tabletop dancing, stripping, all that sort of stuff. Um, so you you would say that's under the sex work? Fuck yeah! It's it's all banner. the same. Yeah. If you don't ask me whether I and I I I appreciate the term sex work and sex worker. I I do and I appreciate the woman who created those terms and I appreciate those meanings. But even Carol Lee created those terms in response to sexual violence that she had experienced mm. um, as a sex worker. I use the term prostitute because. That's what I do. That, that's what I am. Men turn me into a prostitute. So, I mean, let's... And also, I think, you know, the prostitute's voice gets lost when we have conversations about sex work. The term sex work now is so broad. So how, how would you define them? What's the difference between a sex worker and a prostitute? Well, a, a sex worker can be a prostitute, but yeah. a sex worker can also be a camera, someone who sells content on OnlyFans. A sex worker can be anyone who sells sexualized services in the sex industry. Right. I'm quite clear that I would never have become a prostitute if it was not for having the unfortunate fate of crossing paths with that man who set me up to fail. And what's really sad is that I fled Australia simply because I would see him around town and it was so triggering. I tried to have traditional relationships um, and they just didn't work. So why I left. Why didn't they work? Because you can't be unraped. You cannot be unprostituted. You cannot, once you've crossed that line of being sexually violated by men, you cannot then just easily step into the role of acceptable woman, which is wife, good career, mother, I mean, to be honest. So how, how would those how would those relationships work? So in later life, if you met a man in a bar or on a dating site or whatever, you went on a date. I wouldn't be, I, I, I couldn't have sex in a relationship because I didn't understand what sex was in a loving context. I didn't have sex sober until I was in my late thirties. Um, for me, I mean, sex is a form of self-harm, but it's also a form of mocking. Like if you were to ask me now, why am I prostitute? A, it's the money. I've got university fees to pay. And once you, you're known as, as a prostitute, it becomes impossible to then try and move away from prostitution. Although I respect that I'm quite the hustler <laughs> and I've turned my <laughs> academia into prostitution. Secondly, I'm a prostitute because I couldn't think of anything more feminist than capitalising off the one thing men demand, want, need and shame women for whoever that first woman was who says i'm going to put a price tag on my cunt god bless her because <laughs> i mean honestly men turn me into a prostitute men shame me for being a prostitute if i reject men they go well you're just a prostitute men call me a dumb whore even though i'm into my fourth year of a phd candidature and i guess the probably another reason is i, for, I see it as a form of self-harm because it allows me to continue this cycle in my head about you're nothing you're worthless but at the same time that still inspires me to keep going but also I think it's a form of mocking against men 
because like documentary film and because like like photography, it's a creative treatment of actuality. It's not real. The whole thing is a performance. And I guess the mocking comes in that these men think it's real and I'm just giving this performance, you know. So you, you feel you are playing a part yeah. when you are with a client? Um, it's a hyper-happy version of myself the cool girl men love the cool girl right and you know men feel in and what underpins men paying for sex is entitlement and i'll come back to talk about this guy that's come back into my life in that when this man popped up on social media my rapist i i mean i completely went off on a cocaine bender <laughs> and in the past when i got high i wouldn't think about him but because I'm in a different place and I've intellectualised a lot of things, he was all I thought about. Yeah. <laughs> and I got very upset and I wrote on my Facebook page, for God's sake, if somebody wants to explain to me why this man is so obsessed with me after all this time, please tell me because I'm losing my mind basically. And this man I went to high school with, he, um, he sent me a message and said... Um, if you'd told me whilst you were at high school, I would have crippled the guns, <laughs> which is love, to be honest. But him and I got talking and, I mean, we now pretty much talk every day, but in the very early on conversations, when you're a prostitute, there comes that point in every prostitute's life that does this person know and what's going to be the consequences? Do they know that you're a prostitute? Yeah. So you're always used to people walking out of your life because they're a prostitute. Like when I miscarried, I had a friend tell me my baby deserved to die because I was a prostitute, which, you know, I'm not angry at it. I pity her because she left school when she was 15. Um, she's Her and her grandchildren are going to end up as married in the western suburbs of Sydney because she's not aware of her own subjugation. I had a man I was in a relationship with tell me he really wants to be with me but he you know he i'm too vocal about being a prostitute um which is okay because i didn't really want people to know i was dating someone who had an oxford education <laughs> <laughs> so me and this um i call him ab we, we were having these really intense conversations every day and it just literally broke my heart listening to this man just cry because he couldn't help me and we finally got to the thing about prostitution and I knew that he knew because he's read <laughs> and listened to all my podcasts and his first words were so I'm gonna cry his first words were well you would end up as a prostitute wouldn't you and I just broke down because he's the first person who ever connected the dots because he has such unconditional acceptance of people just not of me that it didn't matter that I was a prostitute and when creepy men moan, not all men, he's the man that they're talking about. Not their creepy ourselves, but someone who has unconditional acceptance of a woman's experience and it doesn't, doesn't change anything. Anyway, I then, what we were talking about, entitlement, I then mention him on a blog post saying thank you very much and he's also going to teach me how to headbutt, which I'm looking very excited <laughs> towards. <laughs> He, so I mentioned him in a blog post saying thank you. And then on Twitter, I happened to, we were talking about him because once you're a prostitute, your life is up for public consumption. People want to know everything about you. Men are entitled to have sex with you because you're a prostitute. I then mentioned in an off-the-cuff remark tweet that my beauty friend, AB, he doesn't pay for sex. He's never paid for sex because he doesn't have an entitlement to sex. He doesn't view women's bodies as just a vestal for his male pleasure. I think the words he used was he doesn't covet sex. My God, if you want to understand the, the, the entitlement that sex buyers have to sex, that they'll put their sexual needs ahead of everyone else, for instance, oh, am I an arsehole for cheating on my wife while she has breast cancer or she's pregnant well yes because you have no ability to put your sexual needs second to someone else's health that was so provocative to sex buyers i had sex buyers complain well why does he get sex and i don't what's so good about him a sex buyer wrote a comment saying does he know you're a prostitute 
meaning that any man's close proximity to me is dependent on whether they know I'm a prostitute and if he did truly know I was a prostitute, then he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And it triggered sex bias to such an extent that these men would ask me during bookings, and that's just an appointment, about him all off the back of a little paragraph that I thanked him for being him as such is their entitlement because the idea that a man has access to my body for free is so offensive to them because why do they have to pay for it? Ignoring the fact that we live 16,000 kilometres away, so I'm not sure how physical sex would actually happen, but I'm hopeful. Zoom isn't there yet. <laughs> we don't even There's do no video holograms. calls. We don't, the thing about the imagery between him and I, we don't even do video calls. We mm. do normal telephone calls. How old school. I know, 1990s. You write a letter with a quill. <laughs> I do send you letters. <laughs> um, I think that speaks to the, the power dynamic between sex buyer... Yep. and sex worker or prostitute. Can you talk a bit about that? Because we've spoken a bit about that in the past. Yeah, and I think that uh, men don't like prostitutes. They don't like mouthy prostitutes. And they certainly don't like educated prostitutes who critique any aspect of sex buyer culture. Why is that? They will love you for your mind as long as you say what they want you to say. And the power dynamic in sex work is that, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go in about capitalism and systems of oppression, mm -hmm. but men pay for sex out of entitlement, but middle-class sex buyers also buy into this notion that, that paying a woman for sex is an act of charity. Because I'm educated, I'm not really a prostitute, so I'm not like a prostitute. And then they fall, and this is, it's pure comedy to me they f fall in this role of wise man helping the hapless hooker and that sage man in his 40s and 50s routine kind of doesn't work when the hooker has five university qualifications is <laughs> well spoken well educated and um, they find that intimidating i think they find it offensive and in fact i had once would be clients say to me look i can understand being with a an escort who has an undergraduate degree or a master's degree because many, um, many women do these days, but I can't be with a prostitute who has a PhD because that's just not right in the natural order of things. And what he was saying was part of the transaction of sex is for them to feel manly and like men, they have to feel superior to the, the prostitute that they're paying for sex. And they can't do that if I sit on the other end of the hierarchy. So as a prostitute, I'm scum, I'm nothing. But as a would-be doctor, I'm not scum. In fact, the doctor title sits ahead of the Mr. title on the hierarchy, so therefore I then sit above them. So the way that they then try to, I think, get around that, you're a dumb whore. Really, uh, explain the PhD then to me. Like, <laughs> it's premised on the fact that they think paying for sex is an act of altruism and I should be grateful that they've picked a grotty prostitute like me so when you've fought back when you've spoken back yep. what's their reaction I, I never worked with security measures because i was always looking for a fight with men and i literally would throw someone out downstairs they if you reject a sex buyer it's one thing to be rejected by an everyday civilian woman because that happens but it's another thing entirely to be rejected by a prostitute because i'm meant to fuck anything for money yeah and who does she think she is? She's a prostitute. She's not empowered by selling her pussy. So when you reject them, I get rape threats, death threats. I get stalked. I've lost count of how many stalkers I've had. Uh, in fact, there was one yesterday that I've had to had to deal with. They will make what damn sure to try and pull you down a peg. And the way that they did that was five or six years ago that they shared my face photographs online connected my real life identity with my sex working identity in an attempt to shame me, right? They can't, they can't kill me, but they're going to shame me for being a prostitute. But it kind of had the reverse opposite effect. Because I was so used to shame as a feeling, 
it just inspired me to write a chapter on visual terrorism, the weaponization of photography, which then turned into a book chapter, which then turned into a six-month research project on visual violence, which is then going to turn into postdoctoral research on sexual violence in online spaces. But because I'm so used to shame and I'm technically shameless as a woman, as a rape victim, as a prostitute, once you become shameless, unable to be shamed... Under patriarchy, you're powerful because pff, no fucks to give. and that's <laughs> So when you reject them, the physical violence comes and the threats and the stalking and the harassment. Like I published an article in relation to my rapist popping up and that was also about the death of Sarah Everard. And I got rape threats in relation to a rape article. I'm like, that's bloody irony. <laughs> I had a sex buyer email me and say, it's terrible what that man did to you. Not our men are like that. Some of us are quite decent, but you're a bit uppity, so maybe men just can't live up to your impossible standards in men. And then he's put on the end of the email, but I can't wait to come and see you for booking. Yeah, go fuck yourself. Me not wanting to be raped is apparently having too many standards. Yeah. Because as a prostitute, I'm meant to fuck anything. I am meant to be hypersexual. Um but that's far from the case. I'd, like I said, I'd rather sit on the couch masturbating in my bloody tracksuit pants <laughs> and then watching Netflix and have sex. Because the sex that I have in bookings, it's a performance. But they're buying into a fantasy, aren't it's they? It's a fantasy. It's the delusion, the illusion of intimacy. But I think, especially middle-class sex buyers who use social media, who like to distance themselves from the reality of what they're doing, like to th- they need to believe it's real mm-hmm. because if it's not real... What does it say about them that they have to pay for sex with someone who doesn't want it? And if anything, I learned that sexual performance because the viciousness of the rapes that I endured, the one thing I learned as a kid was you'll survive this if you play along. And the reality is it's a cold hard fact that that sexual survival performance I learned as a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, is what underpins why I can sell sex. I'm not disassociating. I am not someone else. I am selling the idea of intimacy. I don't think sex buyers are bad. And if sex buyers are inherently problematic, it's because men are inherently problematic. I think it's very sad that they pay for sexual services knowing full well it's a performance and then mm. they convince themselves it has to be real. And I, 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 I find that really quite strikingly pathetic because then they get so attached to you and then it becomes, well, you're, really, you're such a nice girl, I really like you, you're really pretty. Um, oh, they'll come out with things like, you know, what I see you as human. Well, congratulations, mate. Do you want to badge because they think it's a compliment for them telling you they see you as a complete complex human being because they don't have to because i'm a prostitute they can Mm. see me as nothing but also the sad thing is i don't care about these men i'm not invested in them i I don't even remember their names because it's irrelevant to me Mm. if they've dehumanized me as a vagina i've dehumanized them as a wallet (laughs) 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 have you ever have you ever had the experience where you have one client, maybe he's a repeat client, and then suddenly you actually find yourself becoming friends with that client or Are you asking me whether I've ever crossed the boundary? Absolutely. Well, yeah, have you ever, have you ever crossed the boundary? <laughs> Absolutely. I, not only have I crossed the boundary, I kind of just flew straight over it. <laughs> it's a dot in the distance. <laughs> oh, just I just leapt over it like a pair of oversex idiots. No, in 2013, I had this very handsome client i called steve mcqueen because he ultimately left me riding off on his <laughs> on his motorbike um and i knew when i opened the door i mean i actually said to him when i opened the door you're going to be <laughs> such a cliche <laughs> and um within within a couple of sessions we'd stop using condoms within a few sessions after that we'd he'd stop paying and we had this three-year intense um, oh, once again, I use the term relationship because that covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, where we really liked each other and it was working, well, kind of working, until I got pregnant, um, which he probably wasn't really happy about because apparently men have no say in pregnancies, his words, not mine. And then that, that lasted for three years and then I got pregnant and then I lost the baby at four months and the day after I was miscarrying, he came home and just came over and just 
sat on the bed and said, I really like you. I can see myself loving you. I see a future with this, but I can't do this. I didn't sign up for this. And he left me whilst I was miscarrying, yeah. Because the fantasy was now shattered? Well, he... He just got too deep into it. Well, I think he, you know, the whole thing, well, you know, oh, these women getting pregnant, oh, they trick men into pregnancy like he, he was, <laughs> right. you know, I'd seduced him with my powers of, you know, my... Reproductive organs. My <laughs> dazzling, charming personality because I'm not scary whatsoever. And um, I think, yeah, I think the, the pregnancy just shattered the reality of what we were doing. Yeah. And, um, and then not long after that, I formed another relationship with an Oxford-educated, um, I'm going to use the word twat, in, not in the offensive sense of a woman, in the offensive sense that it belongs to Oxford-educated <laughs> right. twats. Um, and, you know, we had this relationship and he was very iffy about me, me being a prostitute. And, in fact, he moved to New York without telling me. So then I sent him, when I was published in um, the New York Observer, I sent him a link to my article and said, ha-ha. <laughs> but he was very clear. He, he wrote me lengthy emails saying he... I'm perfect in every sense, but he can't be associated with someone. He's a prostitute because the reality, he has no backbone. So embedded is horse stigma that people have, you can feel people walking away from you. Is that because of his his job, his, his well, life? Well, no, his just upbringing? because he's an asshole. Right. Just because he has a complete inability to look at people and not accept them for the way that they are. Well, where does that come from? It becomes from because, well, actually, you know what? It comes from photography because photography has been used to dehumanise sex workers to such an extent they're seen as disposable, dirty fuckholes who are a consequence of their own action. What man would ever love a whore? Because you know what? Men marry wives. So mm -hmm. prostitution photography is the flip side of wedding photography, both peddling different institutes of patriarchy, except one's more acceptable than the other. Although I'm not stupid enough to contractually oblige myself to a bloke and then have to seek the court's permission to leave. Yes. Um, very feminist. Um, because I was such a tainted woman, such a tainted body, the idea of him being seen in close proximity to me as an Oxford-educated banker, I was an embarrassment to him. You said he's an investment banker, so yeah. he exists Some in very... entitled, mediocre man who was raised with every advantage that you could possibly have. Yeah. And the most he's peaked at is mediocre shit because that's the reality. Right. These men grow up in stable homes, they get good educations, they get good jobs, and then they do what men do, which is get married, have kids, get good jobs, you know, pay prostitutes for sex. And they're so the only thing remarkable about these men is how remar unremarkable they truly are because they personify this is what you do routine. And nowhere in this you get a good education, you get a good job, you marry a good woman, an acceptable woman, you have kids. Nowhere in that script do you say, you know what, you marry a prostitute. It just doesn't happen. But even though she's got a five university qualifications, she's become a doctorate, she's still a prostitute. That prostitution thing under hinges everything. Why is there so much stigma around it's the sex way workers? And it's and it's and, and it's not yeah. just female sex workers. It's yeah. it's you know so-called quote unquote rent boys yeah. or trans yeah. sex workers. It's, it comes down to stereotypes and otherness, which actually relates to photography because photography, since its inception two hundred years ago, has been used to classify, categorize, and criminalize people more importantly it's used to create visual representations of stereotypes of other people so we can define our goodness within 10 years of prostitution and photography industries colliding you had photographs of prostitutes that were being sold for more than the services that the women were selling and the problem with photography in media, cinema and art, and the problem with prostitution is that we've had a 200-year history where we've been bombarded with crude visual representations of what it means to be a prostitute. Mm -hmm. You're either a drug aid or prostitute who's worth no good or you're the happy hooker, lifestyle hooker who's parachuted into the industry of middle class because she wants to go on some bougie um, sexual 
experiment, right? And sure, those two polar extremes exist, but there's a whole group of people. And also prostitutes are the only people that I can think of who it's so socially acceptable to stigmatise, discriminate against, because they sell sex. Yet sex buyers aren't subject to such harsh critique, even though that they buy sex and maybe they should be. But it all comes back to our ideas and images in our head that we have about other people and that's all from visual representations, which Mm. is all through photography, which is um, what I found quite interesting about our discussion during the photo shoot about me wearing high heels and you didn't want to have anything that was stereotypically associated with prostitution and I really respect that. I don't fucking wear heels when I'm a prostitute, right? (laughs) Barefoot in case I need to run down the stairs. But it it is a kind of filmic idea that the prostitute comes down the lane and the camera's yep. on her feet and it's panning up on the long legs, the mini skirt. Yep. And, you know, it's an ITV1 drama. Yep. And that's what I've always been trying to stay away from with the images in this And project. when you look at images in media, even if the article's about indoor sex work, they'll all show photographs of outdoor sex workers, mm. right? the street work- workers. Yeah. Photography cannot empower sex workers because photography has disempowered marginalised women for so long. People will say, I want to photograph sex workers to show them as human, but A, hookers are already human, right? And I appreciate my language is harsh, but I can use these terms. No one photo shoot by a photography is going to undo 200 years of history. Agreed. And it's kind of, for me as a visual arts academic and as a prostitute, it's bloody insulting that people want to use photography to humanise sex workers when photography has dehumanised. The images that forming people's heads about the lives of prostitutes come from these crude representations that depict is sex work empowering or is it exploitative, which is these ridiculous binary arguments that come from 1970s feminist sex wars. In fact, there's an image from 1901 about the critique of British servicemen using prostitutes in India and the image depicted on the cover is an Indian woman in chains. So the idea that prostitutes are somehow so dirty you can do anything to them comes from images. So when Dan, I'm going to name him, my friend Dan from Oxford, socially distanced from me, he's socially distancing from the images that other people have in their head of me before they even met me. When people find out I'm a prostitute, they walk out of my life, I get insulted. So it's it's quite difficult. So it's really, and it's really intriguing about my whole involvement in this project, because I'm fairly sure in in the original email I sent you, you said you want to show sex workers as humans Mm. and isn't there space for everyone? And I'm fairly sure you got my standard care response from <laughs> prostitutions. Because like, let me explain. Yes, you've shown me that absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm quite aware now. It's a bad turn of phrase. Yeah. But for what what I was actually getting at was, I want to show that sex workers yep. are more than just the word sure. sex workers. Yeah. So for when I use the term humans. Yeah. I actually just mean a full, rounded individual with nuances and and idiosyncrasies. And I understand that. But photography does not have that power to humanise women who have been so stigmatised. But the other thing you said, you also said, isn't there space for everyone in the photographic landscape? Actually, no, there's not space for everyone. Um, Piss off, go find something else to photograph. But, (laughs) But what I found intriguing about your project is that it challenged the notion of outsiders right it would be foolhardy of me as a visual arts academic who's an expert in sex work visual cultures to go only representation should be made by sex workers there's room for allowing people to have you know consultation right and you went to a lot of work before we got to this yeah to learn and understand but the whole idea of an outsider what's an outsider these days i'm not saying you as a a jewish gay man is you're othered but we share different forms of being othered your experiences don't give you permission to then come into my space as a sex worker it makes you an outsider but what at what point does an outsider then cross over to an insider and i will say there's a, a young 
woman that I mentor, Tyler, she's doing this beautiful photographic research project looking at the four different identities of sex workers. Now, she has a connection to sex work because she accidentally moved into the red light district <laughs> and couldn't understand. In London? No, in, um, in Leeds in when Leeds. she was at university. Oh, yes, you did so. And couldn't ages, understand why her middle class people, friends, were giving her grief. So her proximity to that red light district, to me, makes her an insider. So her work has value. The other one I think of, and I'm, she's going to kill me because I've forgotten her name. She's doing a, an, a, a PhD in photography on photographic archives of prostitutes in Hull and Amsterdam. She grew up her entire life in proximity to sex workers and was told by her parents and grandparents, if you ever get lost, go up to one of the street girls, sweetest pie, they'll help you get home, they'll look after you, right? <laughs> oh, wow. Exactly. So her relationship to sex work isn't performing sex work, but she grew up in close proximity. So does she have a right as a, a photographic archivist to do something with sex work? Absolutely. But where it gets tricky is where people approach me I want to photograph sex workers to see them as human because I think it adds edge to their portfolio. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you look at all the, the dramas that are going on with Getty photographs and with Magnum where they're in hot water and by rightly so for selling highly sexualized images of, you know, rape victim, child rape victims, mainly kids of colour and black children, calling them child prostitutes and then selling them. Do you know? So you have this 21st century, you have this 20th century mentality, 21 years into the 21st century. And I think the only way that photography can ever humanise sex workers, yes, if we allow people who are insiders to photograph, but also go, you know what? Let's shut down all these 20th century photography institutes that carry this 19th century, 20th century mentality that prostitutes are people that we photograph and we sell and we have a right to because we're photographers. We're actually, photographers aren't a special group of people. You don't have bloody extra special human rights. You're mm. not going to die if you're not allowed to photograph a certain population <laughs> of people. So my argument against places like Magnum Photos is that if they're going to sell images of rape victims, images of sexualised children, then they shouldn't call it what it is they're peddling child abuse and they should be called child abusers because they're facilitating this culture that teaches some children are more disposable than others and then it's those children that we make into adult prostitutes because we don't give them any other option. We're so damaged them, we're, they're so traumatised, we've stigmatised them that it makes it impossible for them to go seek other work. So my answer to the Rambler, I don't even know what the bloody question was anymore, I'm rambling so much, <laughs> is shut down Magnum, shut down Getty, You'll friend a few delicate boomers, the white men with cameras, oh, but this is the way we used to do things. The way you used to do things is problematic. Shut it all down. Reset the, the photography button, for God's sake. We, we literally have an opportunity where we're so digitally networked. Photography is democratised. It's accessible. We could change visual landscapes overnight, but visual landscapes don't change overnight because political and social landscapes that benefits certain people are underpinned by visual representations that make some people more disposable than others. But even if we do shut down organisations like that, the images will still remain. Yeah, so how do we yeah, combat but, those but images? But you'll and, eventually and get to the point, because when a, somebody takes a photo and they say they're not biased, bullshit, whatever yeah. is constructed, whatever you think you know about a person will manifest through your lens, you know. Mm. The lens is for sex workers is an agent of violence. But eventually, the landscape will shift by default because you'll eventually have people coming into the industry or taking photos that are platformed that will eventually change other people's perceptions. The problem with sex workers that they have now is Sester and Foster that basically says, you know, if, you, if you're caught selling sex online, the site is going to be held accountable for child um, trafficking. Websites like Instagram make it incredibly hostile to be a woman sex worker to the point that they've, they've criminalised whoreness, hence the nude on the woman's nipple because apparently nudity mm -hmm. is a, 
associated with Hornets. And they've criminalised everything on that platform associated with prostitution, like being vulgar, being slutty, being so. So what that does is I hate to imagine, I cannot even quantify as a visual academic, the sheer volume and scale of sex worker visual oppression and censorship that is occurring now. If people like me don't get mouthy and start ranting about this now and start holding platforms like Instagram and Magnum Photos to account, in a hundred years' time, people like me will look back at this time and see the carefully constructed version of the internet that doesn't involve sex workers because they just don't exist in visual spaces. And it's this old saying that whoever controls the image controls the message, which was brilliant for governments prior to 1990 when, you know, they controlled mass media, basically. Media yeah. was very limited. Along come the 1990s, you get the um, democratisation of photography, you get um, mobile phone technologies, you get the interwebs, and boom, for the first time in history, marginalised others can start taking photographs of themselves, which is what my research is on the sex worker's image maker, not as a woman we relegate as image seeker. So 25 years in the future to now, governments have realised, well, we can't control the image anymore, so we're going to control the dissemination of the image. And if there's no photographs in online spaces that depict sex workers working or in their everyday life, then that's not going to change people's visual image in their head because they're simply not going to exist and this is why in depictions of media you get the same constant image reputation um image repeat like in the 1990s prostitution was considered dirty so the streets were dirty and the narrative now is prostitution is trafficking so the image is about you know eastern european women being trafficked but there's a good way to combat that by taking part in in decent projects like mine, to to undo and to um, completely overshadow sure, what, what's part, come before. I get that, but until we start, I mean, why do photojournalists still exist? <laughs> do you know why do we rely on these twentieth century, nineteenth century platforms and organisations to maintain control? But over even, visual but even, representation. But even away from, you know, the Gettys and the, the uh, Magnus, but, you know, people, people, I, I'll use myself because I'm here, people like me who have an Instagram and have a website and have, have can now been connected sure, to you and still, some other people. Sure, but still, it's still reliant on a sex worker needing someone else to, to showcase them as human. Mm-hmm. And that's inherently problematic because as a sex worker, I should be able to go onto social media and go, I'm a sex worker, these are my photos without fear of censorship. Yeah. Which begs the question, what is social about social media? Yeah. I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, it's a great start. And I do think there's room for collaboration and stuff. But until we start systematically dismantling the broader systems of oppression in photography, and let's be honest, the white-centric male gaze embedded mm-hmm. in photography's culture, prostitutes are always going to be depicted. I cannot believe... Magnum with a straight face can justify in 2021 taking a photograph of a 14-year-old black girl with her baby, tagging a child prostitutes, child labour, and then justify sending a white man over to these countries and photograph. It's completely abhorrent because this is all, you know, photography is a weapon. This is all forms of visual violence. For instance, crude media representations of the prostitute leaning into a car, that is a form of visual violence. And until we start challenging these organisations and stop holding them up as best practice, this is what this, it's like men who pay for sex mm. or men, this is what we do. I got married, I'm bored, blah, 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 blah. Photographers have the same problem. This is what we do. And I'm like, yeah, nah, it needs to burn the whole thing. Very Australian about this. You get, you just have to burn shit down. You have to. There's no other way to dismantle. I also swear a bit. <laughs> there's no other way to dismantle systems other than doing it violently and aggressively. Um, it's like people who tell me off in response to my rapist that I should be civil when there's nothing civil about rape, um, and there's nothing civil about photography. In fact, if you read the book, The Civil Contract of Photography, there's a chapter on rape. Why don't we see any images of rape? Why don't we see any images of rapists? What's that about? 
And then someone may argue, well, if I'm looking at a porn image, how do I know it's not a rape image? Well, that's a very interesting question that we need to solve for porn. So for me, I guess all my experiences and my attitudes kind of have got me to the point that I question entire systems of oppression through photography where, sure, it's a nice photo shoot, it's a nice photographic essay, but the idea that people can be completely neutral when they photograph is laughable. It's like the unedited hashtag. It's no filter hashtag because you've already edited that photograph. You've already taken it before you've seen it. And it's very difficult to find people in the photography industry, like my beauty friend who has an unconditional acceptance of people, and then that flows out in their images. But when you do, those people typically belong to some sort of marginalised group. Black photographers, you know, trans photographers, gay photographers, do you know? Jewish photographers. Jewish photographers. <laughs> They're othered in other some capacity that the white male photographer still dominates the landscape. I'm not suggesting that we um, get rid of men, but, you know, boomers will be extinct one day. Nature will do that for us. <laughs> I agree about the 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 subjective photograph. Yep. I've never taken a, a, a photograph that is objective. I've never taken a photograph that is 100% the truth. It's impossible the fact that I'm deciding what's in the frame is is a, a, a filter yep. that yep. say it's editing before you've taken it. Time's cracking on. One last question. What does the future look like for you as a prostitute? Are you are you gonna continue? Are you looking to is there is there an end game? Are you looking to get out it's at a really one point? Interesting question. There is no future for me as a prostitute because of my this unassuming completely decent bloke not because of falling in love your friend back in australia not because he's promised to rescue me not because he's giving me money it's because he's so decent and so incredibly accepting of me and so sees me beyond what i do or what's been done with me that I now have a benchmark in my life of a man who's treated me respectfully. It makes it too difficult to then be around sex buyers because sex buyers' behaviour is inherently problematic and I can't tolerate their manipulation anymore, their violence, their attitudes because I've been given a template to a decent bloke and it's such a modern-day love story. It's because I named my rapist on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it... Isn't it amazing? The person who's almost saved you, let's say, this this shining light is from the period of your life that kickstarted. Well, he hasn't he hasn't saved me. What he's done is reminded me of who I was before I met my rapist. And he's reminded me he still sees me as this yeah, oh, I was funny as a kid. <laughs> he, still, he still sees me as Cam. He he doesn't see me in any, any other capacity other than this scrappy little kid that he knew. And it's his, oh God, I'm going to use that awful word, humanity, <laughs> that makes it impossible for me to tolerate nefarious stereotypes and actions because the manipulation of sex bias has always been so transparent, mm. but I've tolerated it as a form of self-harm and I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely... Can't, and but also there's consequences when you start publishing about sex work and which I do and I critique sex by a culture. Um, I, I especially critique sex by invisibility in online spaces and there's consequences to that. And if we go back to our original comments about social media, I'm so tired of being consumed. This man, he doesn't even look at his phone every day. He's managed <laughs> – I did say he was a perfect man. He's managed to <laughs> – not buy into the technological bullshit that we're constantly connected mm-hmm. and what he's done through no, nothing other than being himself is he's disconnected me from the version that rape and prostitution turned me into. That's why I, why I can't do it anymore. So you're out. I'm out. You quit. But it's kind of like the mafia once you're like, <laughs> But the, the, the stigma, everyone knows I'm a prostitute. I'm outed online. It's so pervasive and perverse. But it's also quite mentally health damaging and I respect its work for some people, but it's not for me. I I never respected it, never valued it. 
it's essentially easy. And for me, you know, it was quite problematic. So there is no future in prostitution. I will, however, profit from talking about my experiences in prostitution, which I'm sure that's going to piss men off. So, <laughs> And why not? Added why, bonus. Why shouldn't I know, you? I why know. shouldn't you profit from it? I know. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess he's... Um, he he's he's just reminded me of a version that before I was fourteen, and that's quite quite powerful. And you know, more importantly, as an angry feminist, he's going to teach me how to headbutt, and that's frankly the skill that I've missed my entire life. <laughs> Huge thanks to Camille for taking part in this episode. Next time on Sex Work. I'm pretty hard. I like them loose. I've got, like I said, I like them loose because I can just go in there and fuck it as I like, you know? To have somebody who who is a slut who enjoys sex, Yeah. there's no shame in that. It's beautiful. Mm. I think for me, when I'm fucking a girl or a guy and you fuck them so much that the, the whole becomes so open and wide and loose and it's just so fucking big and to me that's when they look the most beautiful be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that episode and check out the portraits on instagram sftl underscore studios this has been a shoot first talk later production written and produced by robert gershenson consultation by jason domino and camille waring partly funded by the photographic theorist